It's good to see you guys. Uh, we're going to keep going this morning in our, uh, in our journey through the book of Colossians. And, and in particular, as we started last week, even kind of focusing down a little bit, more than just focusing on a particular book of the Bible, uh, now we're kind of focusing it down a little bit on, on the person and work of Jesus in particular. As we said last week, every week that we come and every week that we gather between now and the end of the year is one week closer uh, to getting knee deep and waist deep and, and chin deep in the machine that is the American holiday season. And many times it, it sneaks up on us and it seems to sneak up on us earlier and earlier every year. And, and as individuals and families, every single year we seem to get more anxious about it, more stressed about it, more strapped financially because of it, and the pressures to define what the season is about change. And, and we find ourselves sucked up into this thing called the holiday season, uh, never really understanding what it is we have to be really thankful for, and then never understanding as we get closer into the Christmas season why we're doing what we're doing and, and who's defining the purpose of this whole thing. And, and so what happens in the church is we take these particular four weeks right before Christmas to, to do what we call Advent, which is an amazing thing. I mean, the church calendar in and of itself is an amazing thing. Uh, how the church calendar got established and, and really what it communicates is, is stunning and it is absent in the life of the church for the most part in this day and age because we seem to feel like we can define things however we want. But the church seems to, to focus in for four weeks in the, in the heart of this season to say, okay, now this is why we do this. I know you've been pressured with sales for weeks. I know you're anxious for weeks. You're trying to figure out what you're going to do with Christmas. Now pay attention to this little baby. And we sing songs and we do these little things and we try to take all the pressure and all the time and, and collapse it into four weeks, hopefully giving the church and giving people a sense of why we're doing what we're doing. And, and my hope and my prayer is that this year we're actually going to start earlier. We started last week, and, and we're going to go this week, and we're going to go next week, and we're going to go for the weeks into the holiday season talking about, in particular, who Jesus is, and, and in particular, how Paul in this letter to the Colossian church describes Jesus and what he's done, so that as we go into the season, we hopefully, by God's grace, won't find ourselves caught up in the machine and the busyness that is the holiday season, but we'll be able to have hearts of thanksgiving and and, and really Christmas and the season can be a time of celebrating what's, what's most important and, and really understand to a, to a greater degree and a, and a more stable degree why it is we do what we do. I mean, my hope for, for myself and, and for you, for this church, for, for your families, is that this holiday season maybe will become a season where you have a sense of, of awe, maybe a sense of wonder, maybe a sense of amazement, at what God has done in Jesus and through Jesus to us and, and through us to this world and, and what it is we really celebrate when it comes time to celebrate what we call Christmas. And so we started that last week and we said, this is how we're going to go. We're going to narrow down because Paul does an amazing job in this letter of giving us probably one of the most succinct and, and dense portrayals of the person of Jesus in the entire scriptures. Paul takes phrase after phrase and statement after statement and stacks them on top of each other to help this young church better understand who it is that they worship and who it is that is changing them and who it is that has called them to himself and has made him their own and who it is that has sent them on a mission in their city to see his character and his nature reflected in other lives changed. This, this little church, not, not too different from this one, was being influenced and, 
and being enticed to, to believe that Jesus was in fact true and was in fact real and, and was in fact great, but not sufficient for their lives, not sufficient to change them and make them new, that there was something else that they needed. And so the Apostle Paul takes these amazing statements of Jesus, about Jesus, takes these amazing phrases that have been used throughout the history of God's people from the Old Testament on, and he stacks them on top of each other to help this church understand who Jesus is. And so last week we started with the very first one. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. One of the most foundational things that we have to get, if we don't get anything, is the answer to the question of who Jesus is. And the most important answer that we can give to that question is that he is God. He is the fullness of God. He is God of God's Lord of Lord, light of light, the scriptures say. I mean, all too often in our own lives and, and in, in our own culture and, and really in this day and age, and it's been happening for all of history. I don't know that there's a generation that's ever existed from the time of Jesus on that hasn't been prone to this temptation. But we try to find any particular way other than saying that he is fully God to define who Jesus is. I mean, the more that we can redefine Jesus and make him just a teacher or, or just a miracle worker or just a martyr or, or just an ethicist or, or just a good man or, or whatever it is that we can compartmentalize him into and define him by, the further away we get from saying that Jesus is God, the further away our lives can stay from intersecting with him. Because if he's not God, then we can live with or without him. His claims, his life, his statements, his purposes have no bearing on our life. And so we find ourselves so tempted and, and so easily deceived into defining Jesus as something other than God. But if we don't get the answer to the question, who is Jesus correct with the answer that he is God? And it's the one question and the one answer that has the most eternal ramification on our life. Because if he is not God, and if we do not understand him in that way, and we do not submit ourselves to him in that, then we'll find ourselves one day eternally separated from him. So the first thing we have to get is, is that he's God. The fullness of God came in Christ. There was not a time when he never existed. The next thing Paul said was he was the firstborn among creation. And, and we ended last week talking about that and studying how through history that was developed and how we came to these great statements, these great creeds about the deity of Jesus because if we don't get it straight, we'll mess it up. And for all of history, including today, people have taken this statement about Jesus to say that he's the firstborn among creation and used it as a way to actually define the fact that they say Jesus isn't God. If he was the firstborn among creation, there must have been a time when he didn't really exist. The Jehovah's Witnesses, probably the most famous or most recognizable to you, they take this particular statement and this particular verse and say, well, therefore, Jesus couldn't have been God. He was born. He was the firstborn of creation. Therefore, he couldn't have been with God, fully God, fully God for all of eternity. He can't be who he says he is. And so we talked last week and unpacked that last week and, and saw how the church has discussed this and what this really means and that as these statements about Jesus being the firstborn and, and Paul's usage of this language of Jesus being the firstborn really harkens back to the understanding that the word firstborn doesn't necessarily always mean biology, but it's often talked about, especially in culture and scripture, as preeminent. It means first among all things. Psalm 89, if I, I should have gone back and grabbed it. Psalm 89, if I, if I can remember it correctly. There's this great messianic psalm about the coming Messiah who God was going to send to reconcile all things into himself and to be king over his people. And he says, I'll make him the firstborn among all kings. 
He will be the greatest king of every king. He will be the preeminent king, the firstborn. So when Paul says that Jesus is fully God, the fullness of deity dwells in him, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation, Jesus is the preeminent thing of all things. That's what Paul is getting at. He is God. He is preeminent. He goes on to stack some things that we're going to get into this week and and carry on to see another statement that Paul makes about who Jesus really is. It has amazing implications on our life together here. But but Paul actually continues to clarify here. Clip those slides for me. I'll I'll show you. Paul actually begins to, to clarify his statements and gets to where we're going today. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. I love that. There's invisible things. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, seriously, there's invisible things. I, I, that, I love that. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul stacking statement upon statement upon statement to, to solidify his case that Jesus was not created when he was born, but he was with God in the beginning, an agent in creation, God of gods. All things that exist were created by Jesus. Fully God of fully God. Jesus did not become deity when he was born in that manger. When he was born to Mary as a little six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus, golden fleece diapers. No. That point is not the moment Jesus became God. He was with God in the beginning. Before anything that was, he was He created all things. Paul, I love it how John said it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing came into being. Nothing came into existence apart from him. Everything. And this week, a couple of days ago, we, we, uh, we took a trip to Skyline Drive to, to walk around and, and go hiking. And you just drive and you see the, the stunning array of trees and plants and the amazing things that that are there and are part of the physical world. And you begin to think that in all of their variety and all of their beauty and all of their glory, God knew that. He purposed that. And Jesus, he created all of that. All of it was created through him. And I started to walk and we started to play with Jude and I began to think about myself and I began to think about our bodies and I began to think about his little body. Do you ever get in awe of your body? I mean... (laughs) Some of you, I don't want to know the answer to that question. (laughs) Some of you are probably too preoccupied with your body. That's not what I'm talking about. Do you ever ever find yourself in awe of how your body is put together and of how it actually works? I mean, I was walking along the trails with Jude, and and we were swinging him. He likes to hold Aaron and I's hands, and he likes to see how far he can stretch his legs and swing and jump and how many things he can get over. And I thought about all the different pieces and parts and systems and functions that have to be working together in perfect harmony for me just to hold his hand, walk and breathe and look, and for him to do all that has to happen for those things to be a reality. And I began to just wonder, and listen to this, listen to this, listen to this by the heart. The heart is the first organ formed in the human body and it's the last to stop working. It orchestrates a network of arteries, veins, and capillaries that add up 
to a system that's almost 600,000 miles long than an adult human. A distance equivalent to twice around the earth or 967 trips between Richmond and Charlottesville. Whichever gives you a better picture. <laughs> the cardiovascular system, the heart, just that system in the body, 967 miles, that's trips between Richmond and Charlottesville. It's that big. That entire system in my body is squunched down to fit into a package that's six feet tall. The heart pumps 1,800 gallons of blood a day and sends oxygen via red blood cells that go through the entire body, that circumnavigate the entire body in less than 20 seconds. They travel 12,000 miles a day and they do it every day. Every day, day after day, day after day. As that's happening, neurons or, 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 or nerve cells send signals back and forth to the brain at speeds over 250 miles an hour. That lets me hold Jude's hand and swing him and, and see what he's doing and enjoy his presence and interact with him and, and wrestle with him. The body, just the body, just the cardiovascular system is a masterpiece among masterpieces. And in the beginning, before anything was that is, Jesus, fully God of fully God, knew this and spoke it into being. He is fully God, fully God. In him and through him, everything that is was created. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And we do our most damaging work to the nature of Jesus by trying to define him as anything but that. How can we take an understanding of who he is, fully God and fully God, only in our sinful hearts can we try to distance ourselves from that grandeur and that majesty and say, no, 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 he, he, he's just a good guy. God happened to see him, knew he was good, and said, no, in this guy, I'll, I'll invest my deity. Jesus was with God in the beginning, fully God and fully God. Everything was created by him, through him and for him. There is not one particle on this earth, in this cosmos, in anything that exists that we haven't even named yet that is not in existence for the purpose of ultimately bringing glory to Jesus. Unbelievable. Fully God. Fully God. Everything exists for him. That's who we celebrate when we go into this season. That's this baby in this manger. The fullness of God who created everything, who spoke your heart and your body into existence, descended and became human. As we had disregarded God and substituted him for ourselves, God substituted himself for us and came and became like us in form. And he lived the life that we were created to live that honored God and worshiped God for who he was, but instead we substituted ourselves for him. And he then substituted himself for us and died on the cross for our sins in our place that we might be reconciled to God that our lives, that creation might be woven back together in such a way that everything reflects his greatness and his glory and all that he created for himself reflects that back to him. That's who Jesus is. 
He created everything that exists for himself, including you and I, and then including the church. That's the next thing that Paul says about Jesus. Not only is he the image of the invisible God, not only is he the fullness of God, creating all things for himself, that includes church. And see, Chris already touched on it a little bit, but we have this crazy misconception in our, in our culture that the church is this place that we go to. That on Sundays, we, we get up and we drive down the street and, and there's a church building and, and there's a church building and there's the church. And Look, this is a school cafeteria. And that's what this is. This is an elementary school cafeteria that almost 400 kids come into and eat in every day, five days a week, that PTA meetings meet in, um, that plays are performed in. It's a school cafeteria. It's not the church. But we have this crazy misconception that the church is this building or, or this thing, and, and the problem is we get so preoccupied with that that we focus all of our attention and all of our energies on, on this thing and on this building, and everything about who we are and what we do becomes about this building because that's what church is, but the problem is there will always be a better building. There will always be a better structure. Someone else will always have a bigger space or a cooler space or a brighter space or one that smells less like tater tots or whatever this smell is. There will always be another building. And so we chase our tails as a people trying to be the church, the building, the thing. And and others have this idea that the church is an event that we go to. You know, we're going to go to church. And for you, you may not think, I'm going to church, I'm going to the building, I'm going to this, this event, this moment where people get up and sing music and we have coffee that you can drink and don't pay for and, you know, you can send your kids to a separate place so you're not around you for about an hour, hour and a half and it's this event that we come into. So what happens is we get so focused on this event, we begin to pour all of our understanding into church being this moment that we spend all of our focus and all of our energy trying to make this event better and better and better as we should, but it's not the church there will always be somebody that puts on a better event. Probably the people with the bigger building. They'll put on a better event. They'll talk better. They'll welcome better. They'll sing better. They'll not have curtains for walls. They'll do whatever they do. I mean, I don't know. But we get so focused on the church being this moment that then we, we put all of our energy and all of our effort and all of our focus into this thing, and it's not the church. It's not the church. The church is something that we actually are. Listen, the fullness of of God came into creation in Jesus. God of gods gave himself up for us that we might be reconciled back to him. In the moment that God gave himself up on the cross for our sins and God vindicated that by raising him from the dead, the moment that we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus For our sins, you are united to this thing called the church. The church is the community of people who have been redeemed by God through Jesus for his glory. That's the church. It's not a place. It's not an event. It's a people. It's something that we actually are, and it's something that Jesus created. Which means if he's not God, there's no church. 
Which means if he's not God, like we talked about last week, there's no gospel to reconcile us back to who God is. It starts with the understanding that he is God. And in that, he gave himself up to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And in that moment, he created a people for himself that he calls the church. Listen to this. This is one of my favorite understandings of this. God became the man Jesus who, though without sin, died on the cross in our place to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And in the garden, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, substituted themselves for God. And, and since then, we each have done the same thing by living as our own gods. And yet at the cross, Jesus substituted himself for us to bring us back to the real God. And the importance of the cross to the church is that apart from Jesus' death on the cross in our place and for our sins, the church does not exist. And it has no good news to tell. Unless our sin is taken away, our new life as God's people can't begin. It can't be overemphasized that where the cross of Jesus is not exalted and proclaimed as the central act in all of history and our own redemption, the church simply is not present. So spiritually speaking, the church is the community of people who gather around the cross of Jesus to humbly repent of sin, to trust in him and sing his praise. That's the church. The church is the people of God, redeemed by God for his glory. And what Paul's saying is this is something that Jesus in himself has created and he is the head of. He's the head of. That has practical and spiritual implications. Practically, it means I'm not the head of this thing. I'm not the senior pastor of this church. If you're used to or familiar with that language, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of this church. In fact, if you run through scripture, you'll find that Jesus is the one who actually planted this church. I didn't plant this church. A collection of us didn't plant this church. Jesus plants this church. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is the one that he said will build his church. Not me, not you, not us collectively. Jesus builds his church. He is the head of his church. And as the head, he defines who we are and what we do. My role and your role is for us to simply understand who he is and what he is doing and to follow him. And as we follow him and he stays central and we stay connected to Jesus, he begins to build his church. One of the ways that scripture unpacks this nature and function of the church is, is by liking it to a body. Is liking it to a body. This crazy thing that God physically saw and in his wisdom and in his absolute majesty created, this, this thing made up of all these systems and functions and parts that works in in concert for us to live and be. Scripture takes this picture of a human body and says that the church, the people of God, redeemed by God, are, are a lot like that body. They function in some ways very similar to the way the body functions. And, and this is what Paul is talking about. Jesus is the head of, of the church, which is the body. And so if you've got your Bibles, go to, go to 1 Corinthians. We're, we're not going to have a lot of time, I don't think, to to dig through it, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is one of the best places in Scripture to find what it is for the church to be a body with Jesus as the head. You got your Bibles, go to chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. It's not going to come up on the screen, so don't look for it. You open your Bible and flip your pages. And, and just so you know, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles out front. They're free, take them, keep them. Don't, you don't have to put them back at the end of the service. And so when you come in, it's like a library. You take it and you write down stuff. You close it, you put it back. Take it with you. It's yours. 
take it, have a Bible, it's a good Bible. Um, at any point, if you need one, just go grab it. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12, Paul is going to unpack for this church in Corinth what it is for the church to be like a body. And, and we'll dig through as much of it as we can, but we'll start in verse 12. For, he says, For just as the body, your physical body, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So just as your body is this crazy, unbelievable miracle that takes all of these systems and functions and puts them all together and some 600 plus bones and, and 200 something cell types and all these kinds of things and, and then works together in such a way for, for you to live and to experience and to be who you are. The church is to function in that exact same way. The church is like a body with, with every member, every person, everybody having a part, playing a part. There's this crazy unity that's to exist in the church. And it happens as Jesus stays the head and stays the center of the church. And, and Paul's saying, just as we were all brought into the church by one spirit, just as Jesus told his disciples before he ascended back into heaven for the last time, that he was going to send another. He was going to send his spirit who would lead them into all understanding and wisdom, who would comfort them, who would work in their lives to transform them into his image and empower them to go and do the things that he has done. Just as he said to them, wait, and I'm going to come. I'm going to come with my spirit, and I'm going to come, and together you will go and be my body in this place, in this world. As we understand who he is and, and begin to understand what he has done and our lives begin to be transformed by this understanding and we give ourselves to him, all of us and all of our crazy diversity and, 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 and that's the best word I can find, diversity, come together. We find our source, we find our center, we find our understanding in Jesus. That means that all of us, all of us, are a part of this one body, though we're all very different. It means that we don't all have our own individual agendas about what should be or what could be. It means that all of us were brought into this one body by Jesus, who is the head, who defines what the agenda for the body actually is. But all of us, though different, play a role in the functioning of the church. That There is this unity that's brought about by Jesus in the church, no matter how different we are and, and from the different backgrounds that we come from, Jesus becomes the central piece that unites all of us. He, he gets to it a little bit more in, in a few more verses, but I, I just want to point out for you, on any given Sunday in here, there is a really, really interesting mix of people. There's different ages, there's different ethnicities, there's different economic backgrounds, there's different stages in life, there's different experiences, it's unbelievable about the mix of people that God has brought to this place that hasn't even been around for a year. You need to know that that is extremely rare in this. In starting a church and in planting a church, the diversity that can exist in this room on any given Sunday is unbelievably rare and it's something that God does. It's something that he does. And I thank God for it every single day when I pray about the church. When I pray about who God is making us to be, I thank him for the differences that he has brought into this place in all of our backgrounds. And I pray that it gets even more diverse. I pray that the stories get even more diverse and different from each other. 
There's this unbelievable unity that Jesus brings into his people as he is the head and we understand him as the center for which we flow out of. But listen to me, the, the one thing you, we have to guard against, and he's going to talk about it here in a second, but I'll keep walking away from my Bible. We'll get there. It, is that this unity, this understanding of being united by Jesus does not mean or is not synonymous with uniformity. One of the things that we get, we get trapped in in the church, especially young churches, most young churches and church plants start with a group of people who are a lot like, like each other. We look a lot alike, we're probably in the same stage of life, and, and so we tend to appeal to a particular group of people. And you walk into a, a young church plant, and what you'll usually find is a group of people that look just like the people who started it. Yeah, I spent almost eight months in a church plant in North Carolina last year that uh, didn't look anything like me, but they all look just like each other. I mean, it, it was a church plant that had been around for about 14 months, started by a a pastor who was part of the baby boomer generation in one of the wealthiest counties in the entire southeast in Cary, North Carolina, and the entire church looked just like him. It was a, a, a large group of, of very upper middle class baby boomer families who both had PhDs, who all started their families late, and all their kids were, were young even though they had gotten older, and they all came together. There's absolutely no diversity amongst them, not ethnically, not economically, not even generationally. That's generally what happens. But what God has done here and what he continues to do here is something that's extremely rare. And I'll tell you, it's one of the most amazing things and one of the greatest pictures to the power of the gospel and the purpose of Jesus in bringing these people together. As people begin to come into the church and, and they have a, a, a story and they have a life and they have a history and, and they have a background, be it you know, the, the, the place that they're from or the color of their skin or what they've gone through. And they come into the church and they see a collection of people that may look like them or may not look like them, but are all together loving Jesus and serving one another. There is a witness and a reflection to the power of who this Jesus is that is greater than anything that we can say. And so what Jesus does is the head of the body, and as we continue to understand that he is the one that's in charge, that he is the one that's giving direction, that he is the one that's providing nourishment and sustenance to who we are, and we focus our, our attention and our purposes on him, he begins to bring people together that see us focusing on him, and they say, who in the world is this Jesus God that can put you and you together? Where all of a sudden, you and you begin to love one another and serve one another and care for one another and encourage one another and, and correct one another and, and be involved in one another's lives. Who, how does that happen? And the church, the people of God, the body, the one body, many members, all playing a different part and a different role, become a reflection of the greatness of who he is, which is the purpose that God has for the church and the world. And when we find ourselves in probably one of the oldest and, and stalest and most religiously apathetic cities in all of the, the, the country. And, you know, there are people in, in the network of churches that we're a part of that are out on the West, and they're always talking about that being the most unchristian, unchurched area of the country and how difficult it is to plant a church out there. I, I don't disagree, but, but nobody out there thinks they know Jesus. So get up and preach Jesus and people get saved. We find ourselves in one of the oldest and most religiously apathetic cities in all of the nation. People think they understand who Jesus is and what difference Jesus th they think Jesus makes in their life and what the church really is, the big empty ornate building that's on tax-free property that takes up two blocks in the city. Yay, church. They think they understand what it really is. And, and we find ourselves in this time brought together by God for the purpose of reflecting his character to a city that thinks they've got it all figured out. And the greater, the, the greater understanding that we get about what it means to be 
a body with Jesus as the head and the functionality of a body, the louder and the more substantial a witness and reflection it comes to a city that thinks they've got it all figured out, that thinks they've defined who he is and, and who the church is and, and thinks they've figured out that it really doesn't make much of a difference in their world. But Paul says the church is it's like a body, it's like your body. Lots of different members doing different things, all with different functions and different purposes, but part of one body, united by one spirit, one Jesus at the head. We'll, we'll keep going because there's some other parts that I love in this, but I think we're probably going to run out of time. But For the body does not consist of, of one member, but, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would, make it, would that make it any less a part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So there's the diversity in the unity. All different parts playing all different roles, all part of one body. All of you are gifted by God in very diverse and different ways. All of you have been given gifts by the Creator who thought of you and formed you before anything that is, was, and he gave you gifts that you might use them to reflect his greatness to others, that you might use them in the purpose of serving and loving others, that you might use them to his glory and ultimately your joy, and they're all diverse, but all of them play a role in this church being the body of Christ that he has called into existence in this city. Not one of you is any less important than another. All of you have very diverse gifts and, and the function that we play and the function that we help one another in is to discover what those things are and give room for those things to begin to establish and nourish and care for the body. How silly would it be for the eye to say to the ear, you've got no purpose here. You're useless in this. Well, what good would it be for my hands to look at my feet and say, would we be better off without you? You... You, we play a more important role. It's silliness. All of us, every member of the body has been gifted by God to play a unique role in the functioning and strengthening of the body. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about different ways and different things that we're going to be putting in place to help you understand what those things are. I mean, how has God wired you? What particular passions has he put in your in your DNA, in your wiring, in your soul? What things make you tick? What, what things do get you, get you excited? What things has he gifted you in in particular that you can begin to put your hands to here? They're all important and they all play a role. Let's, let's keep going because I'll get distracted. Um, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. best part about it is God put you here. And some of you have been here a few times, some of you for a little while, some of you maybe the first time, and part of it is you, in your brain sitting here going, well, why am I here? I mean, how, what, what's, the, what's the point of this? You, you need to know this. God saw fit to bring you here. Just as he saw fit to create your cardiovascular system to function in a particular way, God saw fit in his wisdom to bring you here to be a part of this body, to bring you here with who you are and, and, and the things that you have gone through to be a part of this body, to be a part of this church. It's by no accident, 
It's not just because someone thought to say, hey, why don't you come here? Uh, that was an instrument in the purpose of God to get you to a place for you to become a part of the people of God, that you might know who he is and learn more about who he is and that you might be able to be in a place to use the gifts that he's given you to serve one another and through this church and through this body serve this city. It should be a, a staggering thing to our minds and, and to our souls to think about the purpose of God in our time functioning through the church. I think a lot of us, and I've been guilty of this for a long time, have such a low view of church because we've so misunderstood what it really is. I think we tend to have a, a low view of what God has done in the gospel corporately amongst his people. And we've begun to so redefine the work of God in Christ on an individual level that may, maybe we don't redefine who Jesus is so that we don't have to intersect with him, but we've then redefined what the church is so that we don't have to actually give ourselves to it. We, we, we've, we've found ourselves in a time when it's much more comfortable, and I am so guilty of this, and it's something that, that God continues to, to, to challenge me on and hammer me on, but you know, we, we found it so much easier to, to live a life with a comfortable distance from other people, from one another, to, to live a life where we might know certain things but remain relatively unknown. And, and God, ha- and ultimately, I think one of the most difficult things about that isn't just that we miss out on a great deal of the way that God not only purposed for us to live and a great deal of the joy that he has prepared for us by being known by others and by serving others, by being involved in other people. Not only do we miss out on that, but I think what we fail to see is that we redefine and we do damage to the gospel. and We redefine and we disregard what God did for us in Christ when we do that. He came and and substituted his perfect life for our sinful one and died a horrific death. Not only that we would be reconciled to God and have peace with God and forgiveness of sins, but that we'd be reconciled to one another. That we would be connected to one another. That as he remained the center focus, that he remained the head of, of his people and our, and our hearts were united by an understanding of who he is and, and a passion to pursue him and to follow him, that we would be connected and united to one another in a way that transcends any type of relationship or, or acquaintance that we could create on our own. And when we disregard that, we disregard a great deal of what he did in Jesus on the cross. And I think that we've, we've gotten to a time in, in a culture when we've created a very low view of the church a very low view of what it is to be the people of God, redeemed by God for the purposes that God foreknew before all creation. And we redefined it as a place or an event that we can give or we can take. Because I've got Jesus and I've got God. Maybe I'll just take Sunday off and go over here. Maybe I'll, you know, the church is something that I can give or take. And when we do that, we do damage to what God did for us in Christ. And we redefine it. We bring it down to a level that it was never intended to be. The church is one of the most dearest things Spurgeon said on earth. 
It's so dear that he, he came and gave himself up for it. And when, we're, when, we, when we misdefine it, when we misunderstand it, when we don't understand Jesus as the head of it and ourselves as connected to him and to one another through it and we disregard it and make it something that it's not, we reflect a, a half gospel. We reflect a, a half truth. And I've been as guilty as this as anybody and, it, and it's, it's wrecked me. I mean, as I've, as I've grown in my understanding of the church and I've become, and I've become passionate about it. I love it. Well, I've given myself up to it. Uh, it's one of the most amazing things that God ever did was that in Jesus, he not only reconciled me to himself, which is an unbelievable mystery. I mean, unbelievable that he would do that. But then he made a way for people who would never, ever, ever intersect in a meaningful, tangible, mutually interdependent way to be united to one another. And in that relationship, in that, that would reflect his greatness. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And some of you think, you know, you, you've got too much baggage or, 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 or you, you're too damaged or you've been through so much. You come on Sunday, and <clears throat> you know, what part do you play? I mean, how, how do you play a part? Your life is an absolute wreck. Well, you play a huge you communicate to everyone else who comes in here that this is a place and, and Jesus is a God who comes and changes people and changes circumstances as you come with a hope that Jesus is real and that he really is God and that redemption really is true. You communicate the power and the worth of the gospel to everyone else. You, you actually lead much of the people of God and the people who are coming for the first time in understanding of what it is to worship him and trust him. You have a huge role in this thing. You play a huge role. And some of you who are a little more mature, who, who have been around this thing for a little while and, and whose spiritual lives are a little more developed, you, you play an enormous role in the life of the church. Maybe you don't understand what you technically do. Maybe you don't technically run this sound or, or build these things. But when you're here on Sunday, you're leading people in understanding what it is to worship God. You're leading people in what it is to prioritize the people of God and the message of God in a time together corporately to worship God. You're, you're leading people in understanding what it is to, to be passionate and purposeful about knowing him. And when you're not here, there's a leadership vacancy. You might think it's just me. You might think, well, he's here. Well, there we go. No, when you're not here, there's a vacancy of leadership. There's a vacancy of, of the body. There's a, there's a missing member. There, there's something not happening. Everybody has a role in, in this collection together and Another thing I want you to, to see and I don't want you to miss as I say that, I don't want you to misunderstand me when I say that. This, like we said earlier, is not the church. Paul's going to go on in, in 1 Corinthians 12. You can keep reading it. I'll just stand here and tell you. You can go home and read it. But he said there's a, there's a reality to the body. There are parts of your body that you, uh, that you put on display and there's parts of your body that you actually hide. You all have parts of your body that you like to cover up for particular reasons. Modesty's sake. You keep them covered. And there's much to the life of the church and the body of Christ being led by Jesus that is covered up. There's much that you don't see, but it is just as essential to the life and the functioning and the health of the church as anything else. See, when you make the church a place or an event, you tend to think, well, if I can't get up here and open the Bible and get on a microphone, if I can't get up here and sing, if I can't play an instrument, if I can't run a computer, if I can't do those things, then what do I do? What part do I play? That's church. No, the largest part of church happens in a way that you don't even see. 
the people back giving themselves to teach the kids, the homes that are open during the week for one another, people to come in and, and to talk and to pray and to share and to know one another and to, and to read the Bibles and to do life together. All these different things that happen that are absolutely invisible are all the most essential part of what it is to be the church. And when we redefine it and we make it an event or a place, you think if you can't do this and you don't have a place, but you do. You do. This isn't it. So much goes on that's a part of it. So much goes on that's unseen to the eye that's so functional for the health and the life of the church. The church is one of the most dear, if not the most dear institution on the earth. Jesus gave himself up for it. He created it in his own body on the cross. He empowers it by his spirit and he sends it out to do greater things than he did. To do greater things than he did. As the body, as the church, we would be a tangible reflection of Christ in this earth. When he was here and he did ministry on this earth, he had a physical body, one physical body. And now, in this time, he has the church. His body is the church. It's us being sent to be the people of God in the place that he purposed for them to be. So what we're going to do is we're, we're going to have some questions that come up that are just help us to process or think or, or reflect a little bit on what we've said. And, and you know what? Then we're going to take communion. And we're going to remember that it was Jesus, fully God of fully God, who came and who gave himself up and who created the church, who created all things that exist, including the church. We thank him for that and we celebrate that and we remember that when we take communion and we give of our tithes and our offerings when we go back there and we give communion. And, and if, you're, if you're not a Christian, if you don't understand who Jesus is, if, if he's not transformed your heart or transformed your soul, look, I'm not asking for your money. It's not about the money. The Christians can pick up the bill. It's for us as a body to, to respond to who Jesus is who created all things and gave us all things. We're just giving back to him what is already rightfully his. And we take up our, our tithes and our offerings and, and then we sing again and we celebrate the greatness of who he is and the greatness of his majesty and the grandeur of his goodness and his grace. And, and then as the church, he, he gathers us all together and then sends us out. He sends us out to the places that he's called us to be and the jobs he's put us in and the schools he's put us in and the families he's put us in and all the places that we go to actually be the church to actually go and be the church in this city, in one of the most apathetic and stalest religious cities in the, in the country. He has called us to be the church, to reflect his glory, and he sends us out on that mission, empowered by his spirit, with all of the authority of heaven behind that. Right before he went up to be with God again, he gave that great last commission to his disciples. And most of you know it. You probably learned it when you were kids. He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, go, make disciples in all nations. Baptize people in my name. Teach them everything that I've commanded you and, and know that in everything and all of that, I'm always with you. We have the authority of the God who created everything that is and who rules and reigns over everything that is to go and to be the people he's created us to be. We have the authority of of the fullness of God in the mission that he has sent us on to be the people that he's called us to be. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that, that I hope in, in weeks and months and years ahead that we learn to appreciate 
that we learn uh, to value in a way that, you know, I don't think any of us have really ever learned to value before. So we pray for us, and, and we'll thank him, and, and we'll move on. <clears throat> Father, thank you for thank you for creating the church. Thank you for making a people for yourself. Thank you for coming in Jesus and dying in our place for our sins. And thank you for accepting his sacrifice on our behalf and raising him from the dead and, and gathering your people to be transformed by your son and empowered by your spirit to be the people of God in this city, in this place. Thank you for doing all of that for us. Now do what only you can do in our hearts to help us to help us to see that for what it is, to treasure that for what it is, to, to learn to, to see the things that rob us of our passion and our joy for you, Lord, and to, and to repent and to turn our, our backs on those things and turn our face towards you. And help us, Lord, to be the church. That's the simple mission of the church. We complicate it with all these things, but it's really just to be the church. The people of God redeemed by God for your glory, loving you and serving one another. The people of God gathered by Jesus, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Lord, help us to be the church, to not get caught up in peripheral things, to not get caught up in events and to get caught up in buildings and to get caught up being defined by however the world wants to define the church, but getting clear and getting solid on how you define the church and the purposes that you have for your church so we can go and be your church in this place. We love you and, and all of this hope and all of this expectation and, and all of this is for your great name that you might be glorified. Amen.